First Kings chapter 13, we've looked at the, the background of uh, this very, very important chapter here in the book of First Kings. Of course, all the chapters of the Bible are important. But here in this passage, we actually have a little um, thing here in our text that just says, now look, Look at what's happening here in this chapter, and you'll see it in chapter 13 and verse 1, where he says, now behold. And as far as our translation is concerned, if you look at verse 4, that begins with the word now. And then if you go on down to verse 11, that continues with the word now. And you can go right through the chapter, verse 20, verse 26, all the way to verse 24, it says now, but it doesn't say now behold. And so we have this now, okay, here's a topic. Now look at this as the Lord is giving it to us. So let's read the first ten verses here of First Kings 13. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel, by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me, that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. It's an amazing thing as we looked here at the characters that are involved here. We saw one of the actors of this chapter is the word of the Lord. You have four times in these ten verses where it references the word of the Lord. 
And we also noted in this chapter an unusual thing, and that is all the actors in this chapter, except for the king, have what? No No name. Okay, we know it's Jeroboam, and we have an unnamed prophet that travels from Judah. We don't know where in Judah. Could have been Jerusalem, but Bethel was, as it were, right across the, the border between the two kingdoms. But he travels there. I looked it up today from Jerusalem to what they think is Bethel is about 12 miles. How long would it take you to walk 12 miles? Well, the other day, I went two and a half hours and I walked 8.3 miles. So you're probably looking at somewhere close to four, depending on how fast you walk, right? Talking about four, maybe four and a half hours to walk from Jerusalem. Now he could have been in the middle of Judah. He could have been anywhere. We don't know exactly where he came from, but if he was there in Jerusalem, he would have walked about four and a half hours to get to this place. And he gets to this place, and what he finds is that Jeroboam is standing by the altar to burn incense. And he comes up to that altar. He doesn't address Jeroboam, not directly. But he addresses that altar, and he says to that altar, Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. And then he does The impossible. He names the name of this one that's going to be born, and the name is who? The name is Josiah. And on you, that is that altar, he will sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Now here's an amazing thing about this prophetic word from the Lord. It names the individual. It kind of reminds you in Isaiah when he names Cyrus, who's going to come and actually act as a type of Messiah so that Israel can return to the land and build the temple. It's one thing just to say somebody's going to come and do this. It's another thing if I give you the what? The exact name. Now what's amazing is, is that Josiah did not come to the throne of Judah for some 300 years. Now if you just pause and think about that for a second, our nation is not yet how many years? It's not yet 300 years. I mean, it's one thing to name a a child that's maybe already born in the house of David and Jeroboam would not know the name. It might even be, you could even guess if it maybe was the second generation, but we're talking three centuries. Three centuries. And then he names the king by express name. And you may want to put a little reference, if you don't have a reference Bible here, and put 2 Kings chapter 23. And let's just turn over there, because we'll pick up some more 
information here in this chapter. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 23. <clears throat> it's detailing the acts of Josiah and verse 15. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place, he, that is Josiah, broke down. Then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Ashtaroth. Now, Ashtaroth was a fertility goddess. So you can just imagine worshiping fertility, what kind of gross abominations would come out of this type of worship. Verse 16. Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain. And he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these things. Then he said, What is this monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Now think about that. You've got in Samaria, you've got a graveyard, and there's a monument there to the man of God who prophesied. And you recall in this chapter that the old prophet wanted to be buried with this man of God. They put a monument there, and for 300 years that monument stood as a testimony to the word of the Lord that that prophet had given to against this altar. And Josiah said, verse 18, Let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. That was the old prophet. Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. So let's just pause right here. Did it come to pass exactly like the Lord had said? And is there not in your heart a gratitude for the Lord's faithfulness to His Word? And folks, those bones of those prophets, you know, they might have said, well, you know, I died and the prophets said that all the high priests that were existing then, that they would be burned on the altar. Look, I got away with it. Josiah goes, those bones are brought back up out of the earth, placed on that altar and defiles the altar and burns their bones on that altar just like God would. Just like God said that he would. It's amazing. And we, the man's name. That would be like you becoming king and the priests come in and say, Now, O king, live forever, but your name is in 1 Kings chapter 13. <laughs> 
And of course, some people speculate, I think it's a good speculation, that Daniel told Cyrus about the writings of Isaiah and actually told Cyrus what he was to do, and he obeyed the word of the Lord as given through the prophet Isaiah as Daniel communicated it to him. What a blessing, what a gift that is. And so here you have this altar that is prophesied against. 300 years later, it comes to pass, and they're still remembering it 300 years later, not only by the writing of 1 Kings 13 in Judah, but also with a monument right there in Samaria. It's amazing. And folks, it reminds me, it just now reminded me of kind of the oxymoronic thing in the nation of Israel today. In that nation, they have a museum. In that museum is the oldest known copy of the prophet Isaiah. And it's on a little thing, you can actually, it's under glass, and you can go and you can walk around it. And the centerpiece of that just happens to be Isaiah 52 and 3. Well, guess who's prophesied in those two chapters? That's the fourth Isaiah Psalm. Christ. You've got a testimony right in the center of Jerusalem (laughs) to the words of the prophet coming to pass just like it's written. I almost sends goosebumps just knowing the faithfulness of the Lord and His Word. 300 years later. Well, here's this man of God and he's prophesying against this altar <clears throat> and in verse 3 of 1 Kings 13, he gives a sign. This sign was to validate his word. And he says, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Now, when the ashes are poured out on an altar, what it effectually does to the altar is it defiles it. So this is God's action against the altar, not only splitting it apart, but his ashes being poured out signifying that the Lord is not approving of this altar. He himself defiles that altar. And in verse 4, when the king heard that, he stretched out his hand to seize him, and we have another miracle. He stretched out his hand and it became dried up like like a branch. He couldn't even draw it back to himself. And the altar split and the ashes were poured out just like the word of the Lord as given by the man of God. This is an amazing sign, isn't it? Everywhere you look at this sign, the Lord is validating His Word. And Jeroboam himself stretches out to seize him. The Lord keeps that from happening. Now just think about that. Think about seeing that. And in verse 6, the king says to the man of God, pray for me. Now just think about that. 
Here's a man instituting false idolatrous worship. He sees the sign accomplished just like the word of the Lord came. The king's name is named by his name, Josiah. And he says, please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. Now folks, just like when Jeroboam said in chapter 12, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This verse 6 of 1 Kings 13 reminds you of who? Pharaoh. You got Exodus right there, Exodus 33, 32. And now you have a similarity back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh four times asked Moses to pray for him and to pray that the plague would go away. And did Moses do that? Moses did do that and the plagues did go away. We get that old saying, that old sermon that's there one more night with the frogs. You got all these frogs just plagued the land. They were all plagues against <laughs> Egypt's gods. <clears throat> and he says, what do you want me to do? And he says, well, I want you to remove the plague. And Moses says, when? He says, tomorrow. <laughs> that's always just befuzzled me why he said that. And here you have Jeroboam saying, pray for me. And did the man of God. Isn't that amazing? And folks, you know that still happens today. One of the paradoxes that I found being a pastor these many, many decades is that people in the community who have no interest in what's going on in this church no desire to be a part of it, no desire to want to learn of the Lord, when they get in serious trouble that they can't work themselves out of it, you know what they do? They ask you to ask our church to pray for them. Isn't that amazing? And of course, in many, many cases... Not only we, but others pray, and what happens? The Lord shows mercy. And this happened for Jeroboam. So Jeroboam, in verse 7, perhaps out of a form of gratitude, says to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. This is a really deceitful temptation. First of all, he promises the man of God gain. Is that a temptation? That is a temptation. But perhaps the worst thing is that what the king was saying to the man of God is this, would you honor me by eating at my table. 
And if you want to put a reference there that shows that, 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30, when Samuel says to Saul that the Lord had rent the kingdom from him, and the king begged Samuel to identify himself with him so that he would not be dishonored in the eyes of the people. Now folks, let me just ask you something. Should the man of God have done that? Should he should he have fellowshiped and eaten with Jeroboam? Of course, we're reading this and the answer to that is what? No. But I cannot number the amount of times when God's people have honored a professing believer they should not have honored. Could we be guilty of the same thing? Could we be guilty of giving significance to another professing believer that's not a believer and they're in a religion called Christianity that is idolatrous? And we give them credibility by our association with them. So it's easy to say, oh no, the man of God should not have done this. But it's a little bit more difficult when it comes home to us. And folks, I I want to admonish you that it is always wrong to honor any form of Christianity that is not distinctly Christian. Now, I'm not talking about there are things that we can differ on, like perhaps modes of baptism, or you know, do you use wine or do you use grape juice at the Lord's table? There's honest, honest differences over stuff like that. But it's amazing to me how many professing believers stay in institutions that deny the gospel. And I'll just take an an extreme uh, illustration here. Should a believer be part of the Roman Catholic institution? Notice I didn't call it a church. The answer to that is no. It is idolatrous. It is anti-Christ. And yet, we have a broad section of evangelicalism today that's trying to reapproach. It is disobedience to do that. And thankfully, the man of God would not do that. Why would he not do that? Well, from here on, verses 8 and following we're going to leave what seems to be the major point to go to something that is repeated over and over and over and over again in this chapter. And that is eating bread and drinking water. Now look at your Bibles here. Look look at verse 8. The man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house... I would not go with you. So he rejected the game, right? 
nor will I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. So let me ask you this. Did the prophet understand what God said? He did understand what God said. He had gone and cried against the altar. Did it eventually, 300 years later, come to pass just like he said? Did the sign of validation, did he see it? The altar splitting, the ashes defiling it. The answer is what? Yes. Did he see the Lord restrain the king's hand? Did he see the Lord restore it in answer to prayer? So he did understand what the word of the Lord said. Now, if you look down in this chapter, you're going to find this being repeated. Look down at verse 16. I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way which you came. It really is an issue of what? It really is an issue of who you're eating dinner with. Right? Isn't that what you do? You eat bread, drink what? Drink water. Here it's an issue of who you're dining with, who you're fellowshiping with. God says, don't do this. Even the old prophet who lied to him, he goes and he says... Verse 18, an angel spoke to me and said, bring him back to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. Verse 19, so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Then the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet and he says to the man, verse 22, but you have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place which he said to you, eat no bread, drink no water. Verse 23, The man of God, he ate bread and he drank water. It really is all about eating bread and drinking water. And in this chapter, there's only one thing that did not eat bread or drink water according to the word of the Lord. And it was the lion. The lion, an animal. Now think about this. An animal obeyed the word of the Lord. How do we know he didn't drink water and he didn't eat bread? Because he he kills the who? He kills the man of God. He doesn't kill the donkey. And then he sits there. And doesn't touch any of it. And he doesn't move. It's amazing. Most most lions that I know of would have killed the man and the donkey. And would have eaten aspects of both of them. 
It is an amazing chapter. Now, I want to finish by asking two questions. Why did the old prophet lie to the man of God? Have you ever wondered that when you read this chapter? Now, I'm going to stay right up front. The text doesn't tell me. But I'm going to give I'm going to give my speculation. This is, I hope, a sanctified speculation. In reading all that this man said and did, I mean, at the end, he asked for his bones to be what? To be buried with this man of God. I think there's a strong possibility that the old prophet wanted the man of God to come to his house for fellowship. In other words, he wasn't against the man of God. There's no indication in the text that the text doesn't call him a false prophet. And there's no indication in the text that he came intentionally to deceive him. The old prophet was a compromiser. And he lived in the kingdom that had rejected the true worship of God. There's a strong possibility that he might have felt alone. So when he hears about this, and he hears about the man of God coming from Judah, he asked his sons about it and said, quick, saddle my donkey. And he saddled the donkey and he rode away after the man of God. And he said, are you the man of God? Verse 14, that came from Judah. The man says, I am. And he says, come home with me and eat bread. I think that there is a strong desire in this compromising prophet for fellowship with a true man of God. And so, the man of the old prophet says to him, Well, you know, an angel of the Lord appeared to me. And verse 17, excuse me, verse 18, he said that the Lord said to him, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he what? He lied. And folks, I'm just going to quote a passage here. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be he is to be accursed. Did the man of God understand the word of God? Yes or no? Yes. 
He understood that word. He understood exactly what the word of God was saying to him. Now here's my second question. Why did the man of God go with him? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I think I'm on a little bit stronger footing with this answer. And I'm going to set it up for you. How long had the man of God been walking? Four to what? Four to four and a half hours. Tell me the climate in Israel. It's hot. I live there. It's hot, and it's deceptively hot because it's not humid. It's a dry heat, and they actually have winds of heat that come, and if you're out in it, you, you don't even think because you really don't sweat. And you can get heat exhaustion very quickly and not even know it. Whereas in Richmond, you're going to what? You're going to sweat, and you're going to go into a little puddle of water, Right? It's hot. Now, assuming, I'm assuming, and I don't know where he came from, but I'm assuming that he walked. The text seems to indicate that he could have ate bread and drunk water up to crossing into the Samaritan area. So he walks, he stops eating, he stops drinking, and he's walking in the heat of the day. He goes to the altar. We don't know how long he was at the altar. We don't know if he just said the word and backed out, but there, all this came to pass. He could have been there... 20 minutes. He could have been there an hour. He could have sat there and watched for a little while until the word of the Lord came and told him to go and cry against it. We don't know, right? All that time he's not eating and drinking. Then, supposing that he went to Bethel the shortest way, he was not to return the the same way. So now he's going to walk, I'm just going to say four and a half hours plus. And at least all the time that he's in the kingdom of Israel, that Samaritan area, he's not what? He's not eating and he's not what? He's not drinking. In fact, they found him sitting under an oak which tends to give us the imagery that he was fatigued. So assuming he's thirsty, and assuming that he's what? 
hungry. Annie's weary. Now you have an old prophet who says, now an angel told me what the Bible says. And you need to consider this passage. The Lord tells you to come to my house that you may eat bread and drink water. In other words, brethren, it was the old temptation about food. Adam and Eve were tempted about what subject? The food in the garden. When our Lord was tempted in the wilderness, the very first temptation dealt with what? Food. Forty days without bread. And the Bible says afterward he was a hungered. And the word hungry there isn't like a general word for hunger. It actually has an imagery to it of a, a stomach twisted in a knot. In other words, the stomach was in pain because of a lack of bread. And at that point, the tempter comes. And if I'm right, this man of God, hungry and thirsty, was tempted with a lie. And we know that the lie originates from what angelic being? The devil. And you know what happens. They're sitting there at the table. The man of God has given honor in fellowshipping with this old prophet. He's given a form of honor to the kingdom of Israel by staying there and eating and drinking in that land that God told him not to do. And the old prophet the word of the Lord comes to the old prophet. And in verse 21, he cried to the man of God. He just didn't speak it. He cried to the man of God. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which He said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. Brethren, it's never right to disobey the word of the Lord. That man of God dishonored the Lord. and honored the old prophet. And the Lord 
dishonored the man of God. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? Folks, we're living in a day of temptation. All men everywhere live in temptation. But in our nation, there is a religiosity and a temptation for God's people to compromise. And brethren, when you compromise, you are giving honor to someone that you ought not to be honoring. When a person gets up and says Roman Catholicism is Christian, you probably have books in your library written by this man. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones separated from this man. I'm not saying don't read his books. I'm just saying that this is a popular thing. The church today is under great pressure to compromise. Churches that are growing are churches that are compromising with the world. They're bringing the world into the church on purpose. We have enough danger of it when it's not on purpose. And here's the great, here's the great trial. These churches are growing. They're the mega churches of the day. But I just want to let you know what God says about that will come to pass. It may not be in five years. It may not be in ten. But what God's Word says about compromise and about false teachers and teaching it will come to pass just like it's written. Do we understand that? And folks, you and I don't need to compromise on the Gospel. We don't need to compromise on the things of the Gospel. We must walk with the Lord no matter how hungry you are for certain things or how thirsty you are for certain things, stand. I guess there's a third question that we could ask and <clears throat> don't have answers to, but I'll let you ponder it and maybe you can text me your answer. I'll, maybe I'll use it. Why didn't the lion kill the old prophet for lying? Why did the old prophet live and the man of God what? God's ways are righteous. 
May God be glorified. Let's go to our Lord.